and I were watching a movie the other night and about this guy who found this stone and it was very much a rare gem, irreplaceable, too much where money could buy. And he held on to it so nobody would ever take it away and it was his prized possession. And this song that I have not done in probably 20 years. Such a gorgeous, gorgeous song came to my mind. And just thinking that with the Lord, it's a treasure that we have. More than finest gold. He's irreplaceable. In his presence, when we worship that king, when we worship that great I am, comes and floods our spirit. And I'm thankful, I'm feeling this morning the overflow of what was taking place last week and with Pentecost Sunday. And as we sing this song, I want this to be from your heart, a worship. I mean, we've been worshiping all morning, but from your heart, this song, not just the lyrics, Church, it's easy for us to sing to God or sing about God, but to stop and say, Lord, here's my heart to you. 
hear my passion, hear my cry. Knowing that you are the lamp unto my feet, you are the light unto my path, it is you. This treasure that I hold, it's more than finest gold, it is you. And as we sing this song, I just encourage you to step out of your comfort zone, to lift your voice, to lift your hands, and allow God to come and just minister to your soul this morning.
see you this morning. How many of you are glad you're here? Better be everybody. <laughs> glad you're here. Good to worship God together. Amen. Well, life is filled with seasons. How many of you know that? Not just four, but there are seasons of life. And uh, one of the families in our church is going through a season. It just affects us in the office, and that's Linda Cachette. Linda, if you'd come to the platform, please. Don't shake your head. No, just get up here. <laughs> uh, Gary asked if he could come with her and I said no <laughs> I think we all know why that 
because they're not leaving Brian, but um, Linda's felt like it's time to retire from church uh, administration, and she's done a phenomenal job. One of the first office hires I made after we came to Brian and hired some staff was Linda, and she came in the middle of some really difficult times. And I'll never forget, Linda, the first thing you said to me when I talked to you about um, coming into the office. She said, I'm not even sure I'm staying here at Berean. Some of you remember those days, how difficult they were. But joined us in the office and has done a phenomenal job, and we've weathered that and come into better days. And so about 10 years that she has served in the office and appreciate all that she's done. She's put up with us. She's kept us moving forward. She keeps track. And so they're not leaving Berean. She's just leaving the office and uh, wanted to just take this opportunity to say thank you for all that you've done. We have some flowers for you. Just asked me, you can be seated. Linda just asked me if she had to give the check back. So, because uh, she knows how the office works. No, because we have second service. So, like, is there enough in there to do this? Is that because she handled all of that? So, Linda, we love you. Glad that you and Gary are staying here and um, praying God's best for your future and this new season of life. So, thank you for all that you've done for us. God bless. Thank you. Well, this is also Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I just, it's been my conviction that Memorial Day weekend shouldn't just be the beginning of summer and picnics, but should be recognized for what it was intended to be recognized for. And uh, the real purpose for Memorial Day initially was to recognize those who have died in service for our country. It's since expanded to Decoration Day, where we remember all of those who have passed, and I think that's appropriate as well. And so, um, if you've had a loved one you've lost in the last year, you have our prayers. Loss is always difficult, but on this weekend, I want us to especially remember those who gave their lives. It's been said about those who serve in the military, all gave some and some gave all, and it's not about who gave the most, but those who gave their lives should be especially remembered. And I'd want you to watch this video with me, please. When I look back through history and consider all the sacrifices in every war, and I try to grasp it all, come to grips with it, stand in reverence of all those willing to give their lives for something bigger than themselves, I am stunned by the sheer numbers. All those lives, all those families, serving their country. I can't always comprehend it. My heart is not big enough to take it all in. That each one didn't come home. What they lost for their service. What we gained for their courage. Today, I stop to remember. Every single number is one soldier, one sailor who got up in the morning and put on a uniform, one Marine who answered the call to fight for freedom 
One airman who knew the cost and went anyway. One man or woman who paid the ultimate price for many. And the freedom I live in now. Today, I remember. appreciative for those who served and gave their lives. My father served during the Korean War or the Korean conflict, whichever term you prefer, but he never ever spoke about it. I don't know what he experienced, don't know anything about it. He refused to talk about it. The number that hits me the hardest as I look up there is the 22 suicides a day from men and women who have served in our military, and we need to remember them in prayer. So this morning, would you stand with me, everyone, if you'd stand? And if you've lost a loved one um, who served our country, our prayers are with you. If you've lost a loved one in this past year, our prayers are with you as well. But let's remember the families of our military, those who have given their lives with just a moment of silence. And then I'll close our time with prayer. Lord, this morning we give thanks for the freedoms that we still enjoy in this nation and for the men and women who have served our great nation to protect our borders and to protect its citizens. I thank you this morning, Lord, for those who gave their lives to defend our lives, those who served in the armed forces and gave their all. We thank you for them and we honor their memory on this Memorial Day weekend. I pray, Lord, for their families, that they'd be strengthened and comforted and ministered to today. God, I pray especially for those veterans this morning, 22 a day that are committing suicide, that you would send a revival among those who are veterans of service that need a touch from you, that need a healing touch. Would you open doors and opportunities of ministry to help them? during these difficult times in their lives. We thank you for the service of our military and thank you that we still live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. amen. You can be seated. Take time to give thanks. Take time to remember. Take time to share memories. We're going to go into 1 John chapter 5 this morning as we continue our series about koinonia, biblical fellowship, and I want you to watch this video with me, please. We live in a world that only cares about themselves, a world that is selfish, a world that is full of itself. When everything has come crashing down, the world doesn't help pick up the pieces. We live in a society that thrives on fulfilling our own pleasures. There is little hope for the world today. 
But the word of God is live and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to the divided soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is power. It gives hope to the hopeless. It gives strength to the weak. It gives life to the lifeless. And there is nothing that can stop us from taking it to the corners of the world. It is a message of love and forgiveness. The word of God is life. If you're glad for the life that God gives, let me hear your hands this morning. John, in his first epistle, calls us to biblical fellowship, koinonia, more than just greeting one another or shaking hands. It's about living life together in relationship with one another. Our goal is that in the fall, in September, hopefully, we'll roll out a new approach to home groups that will involve several components. One will be pastoral care. Um, the other would be a biblical discipleship and fellowship and then an outreach component that we will have a network of cell groups or small groups, home groups, that will impact the church and the world around them. And so I'm going to ask you to begin to pray now about what your involvement in that would be. During the summer, uh, during July and August, we want to provide some training for small group leaders. So this series is really to show you from Scripture why small group ministry is so important. I'm absolutely convinced that discipleship happens best in a small group context. I'm convinced of that where there's relationships that are different than there are here. Why do we gather in large group worship? Because this is where God fuels our fire. In small groups is where God will equip us to serve. And we want to have both of those in place. So as you look at biblical fellowship, koinonia, community, in 1 John, he equates fullness of joy as a fruit of healthy koinonia. In chapter 2, he talks to us about perfected love, that love isn't worked out in your private clause of prayer. It's worked out in the context of relationships with others. Chapter 3, it produces a purified hope. And in the context of community, chapter 4, we develop spiritual discernment as we strengthen and sharpen one another. Chapter 5 then is about victorious faith. Victorious faith comes out of biblical community. Now, when I use that phrase, biblical, um, uh, uh, victorious faith from a biblical perspective, that term gets used in so many ways inappropriately. It gets used to describe a Christian life that never has a struggle, that's always overcoming, always winning, never having a battle. And how many of you know that that is not the truth of everyday living, that we have struggles as we go along. And it's not because you're not a believer. It's not because you don't have faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But it's more than just moving mountains and healing the sick and overpowering the devil. John is talking about a different kind of faith that doesn't overcome the enemy as such, but overcomes the world. What does that mean to have a faith that overcomes the world? It's practical. It's 
it's biblical, it's easy, it's, it's a model that we can all wrap our mind around. But it's overcoming what John describes as the world, as you saw in the video. What is that? He tells us in chapter 3 that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I'm going to suggest to you that a bigger battle for believers to face and overcome is this world system that tries to press us into its mold and make us something other than what Jesus Jesus intended us to be. It'd be very easy today to let the world shape us and by their values and their, uh, their model of how life should be with a cancel culture that we should just write people off or that the, um, the uh, nationalities um, should all be divided and hating one another, that there's racial issues that can't be resolved today. And the Bible says that we're to live contrary to that. We're to live separate from the model that the world is espousing. How many understand what I'm saying? How do we overcome that? How do we overcome that pressure to be like the world is? How do we get to that place? And he says it's simple. There's only three things you have to answer. What do you believe? How do you pray? And where do you walk? It's not complex. It's simple. What do you believe? How do you pray? And where do you walk? Because if you believe right, pray right, and walk right, faith will develop that will help you live counterculturally in this world and contrary to the pressure of the world to hate people, to hate government, to hate authority, to hate everything that's around you. We're not people of hate. That's right. Come on, we're not people of hate. We're people of love. And I believe that God hates racism. But I'm convinced that our culture is feeding it, not solving it. And the church has to live contrary to the model of this world system. And where is that going to happen? In context of community. Because when you are isolated from others in the community, it's almost impossible for you to not be shaped by this world system. There's not, there's not support to call that back into accountability. And that's why community is so important. So he asks us this in the beginning of chapter 5 tells us that we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ and faith in him is the essence of spiritual life. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you love the Father, you will love the Son. So it's simple. Faith in Jesus means loving God and obeying the commandments and believing who he said that he is. Often in Islam, and I want to touch on this just briefly this morning, there's arguments over whether Muslims serve the same God or believe in the same God that we do. Now, let me just approach it this way. What's the biggest flaw of Islam? It's that Islam doesn't accept Jesus as the son of God. They believe they serve the God of Abraham, and there's a bridge that can be built to that. But I'm telling you that we have to understand, and they have to understand that there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved and that's the name of Jesus and whether they if they really loved father God they would love his son how many are hearing what I'm saying and we need to not back up from that we need to not surrender that 
I remember some years ago, I was in a meeting at the hospital and they were talking to those that made hospital calls about how we should make them. And a man who had become a good friend of mine that pastored a reformed church in Altoona was there as well. And for some reason, they put him on the spot and said, so if you were to go into a room of someone that was of another faith, what would you do? And he looked at them and said, what would you want me to do? To lie to them or tell them the truth? If I'm going to tell them the truth, they need to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And if that's not good enough for you, then, I can, then you can kick me out of the hospital. But wherever I go, I'm going to talk about Jesus, the Son of God Almighty, and encourage people to put their faith in. And I thought... I'm not sure I would have had the courage in that moment to not dance around that. But that's the essence of our faith. It's about who Jesus is, as we talked about it last week. Jesus is not a prophet. He's not a created being. He is the Son of God from eternity past to eternity future, always has been, always will be the Son of God who lived in flesh during time. But we have to believe in Jesus. If you don't think there's a divide there, try this. Have a faith conversation with a non-believer and talk about God. Probably be okay. But in the middle of that conversation, shift it from God to I have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the dynamics immediately change because there is something about that name. How many of you believe that? There's something about the name of Jesus and we need to use it that way. Now, if you love God, are you ready? How many are still with me this morning? Because this is going to get, this is going to be fun for me. I hope it's fun for you. But if, if, here's the good part. If you love God, you will love his son. And if you love God and love his son, then you will obey the commandments. You will hold God's commands in a place of honor. They're not grievous. So I'm just going to meddle a little bit. But if you're always fighting against authority over you in your life, wherever you find it, you're not in submission to God the Father because he is a God of authority, a God of submission, a God of structure. And when we look at the commands of God, liberty is not freedom to do anything you want. Liberty is freedom to do everything God wants and liberates you from the bondages that enslave you. And when you love God and you love his son, then you look at the commandments and you understand that those were created for your benefit, for your blessing blessing for your joy to be able to enjoy life to the fullest why would he say thou shalt not steal because he wants you to be poor no because he wants to protect your things it's all how you look at the commands they're not grievous they're not burdensome I read this quote and I had to really think about this a bit God does not give us overcoming life he gives us life as we overcome. I had to chew on that a little while. That's good stuff, Maynard. We want God to just give us overcoming life. God, give me the victory. God does not give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome.
These commands of God empower us to overcome the world. They're in contrast and contradiction with the way of this world system. And the essence of overcoming faith isn't. The essence of overcoming faith in 1 John is not about the miracles that it produces, as important as they are in other places, signs that follow you. Overcoming faith is that you have the power to overcome the pressures of this world system. <laughs> Are you okay? So I was talking to one of our racquetball partners the other morning and he was chuckling. He has not been vaccinated, but he has a vaccination card. And I said, where'd you get that? He said, anybody can download them. You just download the card and then it asked for the doctor's name, and so he put down his pediatrician. <laughs> he said, I haven't seen that guy, I mean, since I was a little kid. And then he said, and I dated it. I said, what date did you put on it? April 1st. <laughs> and he said, you should download one. I need faith to overcome the world. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I thought it was funny. I'm glad for him to do that, but I'm not going to live my life after the way or systems of this world because it is destructive. How many are hearing what I'm saying right now? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world because we see that this way of life is not a burden. It's not a burden to be a child of God. It's not a burden to not murder people. It's not a burden to not steal. It's not a burden to stay committed to my wife. Might be a burden for her to stay committed to me, but that's a different message. It's not a burden because you know after years go by how much richer, fuller, and deeper that relationship is. The rules and commands of God, we look at those and say, those are attractive. They're not burdensome. They give us a whole new way to live. And then there's this portion that I'd like to just kind of jump over just because it's confusing. But so I'm going to shift here to a teaching moment. We're going to go into classroom environment right here. Okay, here we go. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. But he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. And there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is a testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Let's just go to the next verse. I have wrestled with that over the years. What does that mean? What is water and blood? And you'll read one commentator who says that's referring back to the crucifixion because out of his side, remember how it says, came water and blood that gushed out? Someone said, well, it's about, um, it's, a, it's a picture of natural birth, being born of water and blood, that he was born naturally, um, that he was a real person on the earth. That's probably closer 
But let me show you what John is, what I really have come to believe John is trying to tell us. Do you remember last week we talked about the philosophy, the false doctrine that was weaving into the local church? The false doctrine was a form of Gnosticism, which means secret special knowledge, Gnosticism. And the specific brand of that was called Docetism. And Docetism taught that all matter was evil. Therefore, Jesus either had a body for a period period of time that disappeared before the crucifixion or the stronger teaching was he wasn't a real human on the earth. He was, um, um, uh, um, uh, what's that, that term they use for the, the imagery that appears? Hologram, thank you very much. I should have written that down. I had that five minutes ago. A hologram, they would have used that term, but a fantasy of um, not real in real human form. And the secret is, he is saying Jesus came by water and he came by blood. He's testifying to the fact that Jesus' life on the earth was real, that his ministry was real, that he had a real human form, because without that, how can he be touched with the feeling of our infirmity? How can we be healed by his stripes? What value does his shed blood have? All of redemption crumbles when you say he didn't have a real human physical form. Do you remember there was a day? How did Jesus come into ministry? There was a day that John the Baptist saw an itinerant rabbi, said, behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus came to him and said, I need to be baptized of you. And John said, I need to be baptized of you. And he said, no, I need to be baptized of you. We need to fulfill all righteousness. And John the baptizer baptizes Jesus and the heavens opened and a dove descended on him and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Where did his ministry start? It started by water, by the waters of baptism. It began his ministry because every human being on the planet that's going to put their faith in Jesus is called to follow in the waters of baptism and honor that testimony. And how did his ministry end on the earth? His earthly ministry in human form ended really when he hung on the cross and shed his blood. It was at that moment that he cried, it is finished. He came by water and he came by blood. And it's testified to by the Spirit that we cannot undermine the reality of the earthly ministry of Jesus on this planet or our redemption falls apart. And his water baptism testifies to that. His crucifixion testifies to that. And the Spirit of God testifies to that today. That's why I'm saying to you, how you handle Jesus matters in whether your faith is legitimate. How do you handle Jesus? He came by water and by blood. And the Spirit testifies to that. So then in verse 11, you can know that you have eternal life. And this is a testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son, 
Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Remember, I'm writing to you that believe, so that you who believe may also know that you have eternal life. They're not necessarily hand in hand. You have to enter into that knowledge. So what does that do for us? Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. Because there are only two kinds of people on the planet. And my prayer is that the church will recapture that mindset. You either have life or you're dead. There's no in-between. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And what would the devil like to do to you? He'd like to rob from you that distinction. Because as long as you believe that there are good people that haven't met Jesus, your burden for evangelism will diminish, will erode away. We need, however good they are, however nice they are, however kind they've been to you, if they don't know Jesus, there's not another abode for them. They have to know Jesus to go to heaven. It's all about Jesus. And John is driving that point home that the fire of evangelism will burn in our hearts that people need to know that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Not just be religious or go to a church. You have to believe in him. And if you don't believe in him, you're not going there. You don't have life. And then he writes to those who believe that you may know. What is the one thing, if you believe in Jesus, that the devil would like to strip from you? It's your hope of eternal life. Because think for a moment. If you don't believe in heaven, and you don't believe in an afterlife, and you don't believe it's yours, your motivation to keep living for Jesus diminishes. The book of Hebrews put it this way. Those that had faith that pleased God were looking for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And I'll never forget one year being at family camp. It was the year after our son died. And our choir was there, and I was directing the choir. We were singing songs about heaven. And I don't know what got into this speaker's head or why he thought he had to say this, but he said to the group, you can see why this pastor is excited about heaven. His son died and went to heaven and that makes heaven real. But to most of the people in this place tonight, it doesn't matter. And I almost got up and rebuked him in the name of Gary Pilcher. (laughs) Because if you strip away our hope of heaven, you take that away. Our life here is all there is. Then get all you can. Then get all you can. Cheat, rob, steal, climb to the top. Because when you die, it's over. But there's not. I'm not looking to climb to the top of the pastoral ladder. You shouldn't be looking to climb to the top of the corporate ladder. We should be looking for a day when we will stand before Jesus in eternity and hear him say, well done. Peter's not meeting you at the gate. John's not meeting you at the gate. The angels aren't meeting you at the gate. Jesus is meeting you at the gate. And when he sees you as a child of God, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And we cannot lose that hope. Now, I I don't believe once saved, always saved, prayer the prayer and you're in like Flynn. I don't believe that. I believe that you have to live for Jesus. But nor do I believe in practicing backsliding. Or not having assurance of your salvation. 
He says, if you believe in Jesus, you can know that you have eternal life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so we should desire, we'll get to that in a minute, we should desire to live right. But my going to heaven isn't based, listen to me, my going to heaven isn't based on my performance, it's based on his provision. I'm going to say that again, my going to heaven isn't based on my performance, it's based on his provision. And while I may struggle and have difficulties and behave in ways that I shouldn't, I still believe in Jesus, I haven't rejected my faith, I'm hanging on to that, the spirit of God is working in me and I have a hope that is secure that heaven will be my home. Is there anyone in the house this morning? Heaven is what we're looking forward to. So he's talking about groups, not about individuals. There are two companies and we put salvation all about the individual as it is, but it's also about the body. We have hope that we may know. It happens corporately when we encourage one another. Second, what do you need to do? You need to pray according to the will of God. This is a powerful text here. You need to believe in Jesus and then pray according to the will of God. I have to be honest with you this morning as opposed to other messages. <laughs> I get tired of hearing people talk about prayer. I really do. Because if I listen to most Christians talk about prayer, they've created a paradigm that prayer is the means by which we get God to do what we want him to do. So if I pray enough and I fast enough and I work hard enough, if I want it, pray and believe, pray and believe, pray and believe, pray and believe, and it'll come to pass. Sorry. It's pray and believe in Jesus' name according to the will of God, and it will come to pass. Your praying isn't an ability to make God jump at your demand. It's to move you in a place that you want the same things that he wants. And when you want the same things that he wants, then when you pray, he will hear you. And if you know that he hears you, then you know that he has the desire, you have the desires that you've asked of him. Why? Because your faith is in alignment with his will. And when your faith is in alignment with his will, the answer is assured. Faith isn't about you convincing God to behave in a way that you desire. Faith is getting you in a place where you can receive. You say, well, what if I don't know? Then stay in your closet of prayer till you know what the will of God is. Hello? You can know the will of God. People say, well, in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass for me. He did not pray that. He prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you desire. Your will be done. Because he knew what the will of the Father was. I'm telling you, there's sometimes that the will of God will be what you want to pass. It's not all going to be smooth and easy and gentle. And you're not always going to get everything you desire. You've got to bring your desires in alignment with the will of God. And he says it really, really clearly in verse 14. And this is going to get a little tough here. He gets really deep. So please hang on with me for a moment. 
This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Is that making sense to you? You ask according to the will of God. What is it that God wants? Now, my wife and I were having a discussion about that. And there seems to be times as though men's prayers change the heart of God. What happened was as they prayed, they moved into the place where the heart of God was. When Abraham interceded for Sodom, and he's asking if this many, and if this many, and if this many, will you spare the city? Was he trying to change God's mind? No. Abraham was manifesting the heart of God. It wasn't the will of God to destroy the city. But God knew how many were there. And none of the righteous measured up to what Abraham was asking for. Yes, if there's that many. What is he saying? Abraham, you're learning my heart. If there were that many righteous, I wouldn't destroy the city. If there were that many righteous, Abraham, I wouldn't destroy the city. It wasn't Abraham changing God's heart. It was Abraham moving toward God's heart and understanding how God would respond. So when people say to me, if God doesn't judge um, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. They've not moved close enough to the heart of God to even know whereof they speak. Because I will tell you, there are still a number of righteous people in the United States preaching the gospel and sending missionaries all over the world and doing the will of God. And as long as that's happening, God's blessing will remain on certain sectors of the American culture until we utterly and completely reject him. Then he says in verse um, 16 and 17, this again is difficult. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What does that mean? Is he saying you can sin and not die? That's not what he's saying. He is saying there is a sin from which there is no recovery. And when that happens, quit praying about it because you're not going to change it. In other words, if they've not sinned after that fashion, your prayers are powerful. When you intercede for someone living in a sinful lifestyle, hear me. He is saying, God's hearing that prayer. That is the will of God. Keep praying regardless of what you see. I, um, I want to be really careful here because I don't want this outside of, in, in, uh, on the internet to be misunderstood. So I'll leave it this way. I have a family member that has run from God and lived a reckless life for probably 50 years. Now, I want to take you to, a little, uh, take you to another place. I think I've talked about that in here when um, my family was dedicated to the Lord. I was about eight. And the pastor, when he dedicated, I'm the oldest and I have four sisters. And he didn't charge my dad. I don't know if he knew something I didn't know, but he didn't charge my dad. He put his finger in my face and he said, Gary, you have to understand 
that you're responsible for these four sisters of yours. It's your job to make sure they make it into the kingdom and make sure that they love Jesus. And he charged me as an eight-year-old with being responsible for them. And I thought, how in the world? What does that even mean? Why is that my job? I didn't sign up for this. Our life afterwards went into all kinds of chaos. My dad sold out to sinful lifestyles. But I'm telling you, from that day till this day, I've prayed for my sisters to come to faith in Jesus. And I've watched them one by one coming back. And I have a family member that I'm telling you, 50 years, maybe 45 years. And I'm so thrilled that two weeks ago, she prayed the sinner's prayer, asked Jesus into her heart, and was in Assemblies of God Church this past Sunday. I'm telling you, whatever sin they've committed, if it's not the one that leads to death, don't give up. Hold your ground. Keep believing year after year after year. Keep praying because a day will come that God will reach them and touch them for the kingdom's sake. Don't quit. But if they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what is that? An unbeliever can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is someone who knows Jesus, who utterly and completely rejects their faith and speaks disparagingly of the Holy Spirit and curses him. When that line is crossed, John is saying, quit praying about things that even God's not going to change. It can break your heart. It can grieve your heart. It should do all of those things. But he's saying there's some lines that God has drawn that your prayers will not change. Quit praying about it and move on. I know that's harsh, but there comes a place when God gives a revelation that you're not going to change it. Focus your prayers on somewhere that matters. People who are bound in sin need to be liberated. Those who willfully, intentionally, and purposely blaspheme their faith cross a line and he's saying you're not going to change that now that's John's helping us understand the will of God now if I were to apply that he's saying to us it doesn't matter how hard you pray if it's contrary to the will of God he's not going to honor it however hard you cry come on don't waste your energy there because he's not hearing that prayer I know it's hard but I didn't write it. I'm just reporting it. Don't pray contrary to the revealed will of God. So he's saying, believe in Jesus, pray according to the will of God. And then third, walk in biblical purity. Verses 18 and 19, he says, you can't continue in sin. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, talking about the one, keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Here's how we know the children of God and the whole world is under control of the evil one. Um, The whole thrust here doesn't mean that you can't fail or can't make a mistake. And there are people that get in recurring cycles of bondage and addiction. It's not saying they can't be saved. It's saying they can't continue in sin. They will not endorse it. They will not embrace it. They will not own it, even while they're fighting against it. The 
picture here, as long as they're warring against it, God will be at work in their life. But when they quit fighting it, look out. It's going to consume them. The one born of God can't continue living in a sinful lifestyle. <laughs> and you know what? God can do things that no one else can do. Some years ago, many years ago, there was a couple that came to our church and um, long story that I don't have time to go into, but both of them were in rebellion against God. They were living together out in a trailer that had water, but I don't think it had electricity, and living this hippie lifestyle in the 90s. So they were kind of a couple generations back. She had some chin whiskers going and was proud of that. And she told me when she first gave her life to Jesus, she said, I'm not having any man, I'm not carrying any man's name. Nobody's telling me what to do. She read medicine cards, told fortunes. She was out there in a mess. But you know what happened when she met Jesus? She couldn't continue in sin. Hello? Her heart started to soften. She began to recognize that certain ways they were living were wrong. And little by little, I didn't have to beat them into discipleship. The Holy Spirit attracted them into discipleship. And they became leaders in the church. Why? Because the Spirit of God won't let you continue enjoying your life in sin. We need to walk in biblical purity. We need to walk like Jesus walks. Verse 20, it's the son of God that gives understanding of what is right and what is wrong and discernment to recognize the authentic Jesus. And where does that happen best? It happens best in community because you have to be accountable. Then he ends with this strange closing line. The other epistles in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And to all my friends, I greet in the name of the Lord. Kiss, greet one another with a holy kiss. And there's all these warm, fuzzy benedictions. And John, the apostle of love, doesn't end this letter with kiss the brothers, love everybody, hug one another. He get, what's his last word? His benediction. It's what he fears the most. The thing that will destroy the love of God. And I need you to hear me. He says, keep yourselves from idols. What's an idol? Well, I don't have a Buddha. I don't have an, an, I don't have an idol in my house that I pray to. My dad, um, my dad was married to a lady the last part of his life who was a Buddhist, and they had this little altar in Buddha. And, and my dad wasn't a Christian during those days. And I said to him, do you... I mean, I just had a hard time seeing my dad put oranges in that altar and kneeling down before a fat Buddha. I just couldn't get my head around that. And I said to him, do you um, do you do this? She was outside. He said, no, but once in a while I do take one of those oranges, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you say, I don't do anything like that. Listen. And you have to answer this. I'm not going to answer it for you. Anything that becomes more important than your worship of Jesus Christ is an idol. Anything. Anything. That can be your job. That can be sports. That can be fishing. That can be hunting. 
That can be all kinds of things that take priority over your relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to look at that. He's saying, if anything gets in that place, biblical fellowship and relationship will crumble because in John's mind, idolatry was a bigger danger than Satan himself. When something else takes that top place. Is Jesus the most important thing? You see, Jesus isn't a spare tire. Um, I don't believe you should be praying, Jesus, take the wheel. I believe he's the driver. I believe he's the driver. So I'm going to ask you this morning to look in your own heart. Sometimes, this is going to be really tough but sometimes our prayer requests become more important than Jesus. That what we want him to do becomes more important than who he is. And we become bitter when God doesn't do what we want and that's the essence of idolatry. Is there an idol in your way? What does victorious faith look like? Well, it's a simple process. Believe in Jesus, pray God's will, and walk in purity. Believe in Je- It's not hard. Believe in Jesus, pray the will of God, and walk in purity. And you will have faith that overcomes the world. And if there's anywhere in your life this morning, I'm not going to have an altar call to have you come forward or confess your idols or your sins. And I'm really not talking about anyone that's struggling with the sin. If you're struggling, if you're struggling with it, you're okay. You need to win over it eventually. It's when you give into it that you're done. Is there something you're struggling with? Wouldn't this be a great morning to give it to Jesus? When I was talking just a little bit ago, was there a spot in your heart where you realize that there is something more important than Jesus to you? When you want something regardless of what the will of God might be, it's idolatry. Is there something in the way? Or can you submit yourself fully to the will of God? So I'd like to close this way. As Pastor Nathan leads us in worship, just a time of reflection. And I think you can see why biblical community is so important in this context, or we'll get off the track. We'll get off somewhere else. We hold each other accountable with when we're sharing life together. And if there's something you need to surrender to him, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Let's stand together.
ask for divine revelation in this moment. If there's anything that is more important in my life than you are, please help us, help me to see it. Help each of us to see that. Help us overcome this world and its ways that presses so hard to put us into its mold. I ask in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And everyone in agreement said, amen. If you could be seated just for a moment, I want to again take the opportunity to say thank you for your ongoing financial support. Whether you do it here at the Dropbox, you mail it in or do it online, we're really, 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 really appreciative of your ongoing support. But there is one comment from the message I want to make right here. Typically, after I mention blaspheming the Holy Spirit, someone will say, Pastor, I think I've committed it. If you think you've committed it, you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. That's the easy test. Because there's a lifting of the Spirit of God and the understanding becomes completely darkened. If you're struggling in darkness, there's an answer for you. Don't stop struggling. Don't stop fighting. But don't let the devil beat you up and tell you you're not a Christian. Don't let him beat you up and tell you you're not going to heaven. If you believe in Jesus, heaven rests on his provision, not your performance. And then in that, your, your, your faith in the provision is seen by the fruit that it produces. And that's a purity, a purity of life. How many understand what I'm saying here? Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Amen. God bless you. We love you. So glad that God has put us together as family. And I hope you'll begin praying right now. God, how would you want me to get better connected in the community of believers at Berean? We're going to begin moving that way. How can I get better connected? Amen. God bless you. You can be dismissed however you want.